So we're continuing in the uh, series on the Psalms, praying the Psalms. Last week, Richard talked about praying through our doubts. Um, Richard is going to be looking at emotions, so I think I missed the memo on that one. Today, we're going to be looking at praying through God's Word, or praying God's Word. And uh, we're looking at Psalm 119. Um, and uh, if you know anything about Psalm 119, you know it's the longest psalm. 22 stanzas. It follows the Hebrew alphabet. There's eight verses in each stanza. So it's a very long psalm. If you were to read it like dramatically, it probably take you 15 minutes from beginning to end. So I won't put you through that this morning. We're only going to take this portion that Elizabeth had just read for us. Um, but as we look at it, and as you read all of 119, and as you just look at this portion we've just read, you can tell it's all about God's Word. It continually comes back to God's law, His decrees, His statutes, right? And it's evident that the author has a true love for God's Word. So as we begin today, I want to show you some words that have become very important to me over the past year. I'll put a slide, oh, the slide is up. Okay, there it is. Uh, about a year ago, just this past week, I celebrated my one-year anniversary at MCBC. And so, uh, <laughs> thank you, thank you. I'm going to keep fishing for those claps here. <laughs> anyway, um, but as I was moving in, into the office, uh, and I was putting books up on the shelf, this note fell out of one of the books I had. And I picked it up, and as you can see, it says, Hockey tomorrow after school with my really awesome dad. Right? And yeah, as I read it, I felt really good. Oh, that's so nice. You know, I'm just starting a new job, and you know, it's nice to have that connection back to my kids. It's wonderful. I made the assumption this was from Caleb, but when I asked him about it, he said, I don't remember writing that. <laughs> and here's the truth. I don't tell you this because I think I'm a great dad or to make you think that. Um, evidently, I'm not because I didn't know which one of my kids wrote this note to me. <laughs> I don't remember it. I don't, I don't know how I got in that book, but it was there. I don't remember the day, right? Um, but after I read it, I put it up on my desk and I taped it to the desk as a reminder uh, it's a reminder that I have a family, that I have kids. I have, you know, kids and a wife who love me, who think well of me, or at least did one day, you know, <laughs> right? But it's not just about the fact that I was going to play hockey with my kid one that one day. Um, it's not just about spending time and playing hockey with my kids at all. Uh, what this reminds me is that my family loves me. It reminds me of who I am. It puts things in perspective for me, Right? helps me to prioritize my life, uh, especially when you're at work. That's why people put pictures of their families around, right? Uh, it reminds me that I don't want to be a dad who forgets, like the one who just forgot where that note came from, right? I want to be somebody who, who remembers. But it's all about the relationship that I have with my family. And I treasure this note because I love my family, and my family loves me. So today as we look at Psalm uh, 119, verses 33 to 40, we're seeing a man who treasures God's word. You can tell by the language, right? He has this complete devotion to it. You know, delight. He has longing. I'm going to follow with all my heart. Follow it to the end. This very, very committed, devoted language. But the problem I see as I read that, for us, is can any of us really say we delight in God's word that much? I mean, there's, maybe we do, yes. But are there, do you do it all the time? I know that's not always true for me. And I'm sure, that, I'm sure it's the truth for you guys as well. There's times in your life where you struggle to read God's Word. You struggle to do it. Maybe it becomes a chore to you. 
Um, the church definitely struggles to read God's word. Uh, the world does, for sure. Stats back this up. Uh, there was a 2014 study done by the Canadian, uh, called the Canadian Bible Engagement Study, and they compared statistics from 1996 to 2014. And they said that weekly Bible reading, this is in the general population, Canadian population, weekly Bible reading dropped from 28% down to 11% in those 18 years. All right. In 2014, only 5% of, our, of Canadians read the Bible every day, and 14% said they read it at least once a month. So in the same period of time, the church attendance has dropped as well. Church attendance back in 1996 was 27% of the population, and that has dropped down to 16%. And some kind of, I don't know how often that is, but some kind of church attendance, maybe monthly, you know, biweekly, whatever. So the church has 16% of us. So now in 2014, those are the most recent stats, 16% of, the, of, the, of Canadians go to church. Only 5% read their Bible daily. Only 11% read their Bible weekly. And only 14 read their Bible monthly. Okay. The conclusions of the study uh, by Evangelical Fellowship of Canada was that Bible reading and church attendance go hand in hand. Right? Especially small groups, that's a plug for, for Sheldon. When you're engaged in small group discussions, you're much more engaged in the Word of God, and you're much more likely to read it on your own. But what I think and I read that see these stats is that what we believe about the Bible impacts whether we'll read it or not. See, the psalmist here is completely devoted to God. He loves the Lord. That comes across clearly, right? And this psalm is a great reminder of that love that he has for God. So today, the main idea, the main point I want to get across with you is that our engagement in God's Word is a reflection of the relationship we have with God. So why does the psalmist love God's Word? This breaks down into three, three convenient points for me. Okay, I'm a slave to the high school essay, if you haven't figured that out already. Uh, <laughs> introduction, one, two, three, uh, conclusion. <clears throat> But here we are. Um, there's three things that this I think that are in this passage of scripture that we're looking at, and I think they echo throughout the rest of the chapter, and they are uh, applicable to our lives as well today. The first one of these is that God reveals Himself to us through His Word. God reveals Himself to us through His Word. Let's look at verses 33 to 35. Teach me, O Lord, the way of Your decrees, that I may follow it till the end. Give me understanding so I may keep your law and obey it with all my heart. Direct me in the path of your commands, for there I find delight. So once again, as I read that, what I'm hit by is the amazing devotion the psalmist demonstrates, demonstrates towards God's word. Like he trusts fully that these are God's decrees, they're God's laws, these are God's commandments, right? He says, teach me, teach me and I'll follow it till the end, I'll obey it with my heart, all my heart. Like any other Israelite, he would have known where these books came from, right? He would have known the historical figures who wrote these. These were their forefathers. But he also would have understood and believed that it was God speaking through those human authors, that it was God speaking inspiring them to write these words down. That's what we call inspiration. But for the psalmist here, there's more than that, right? There's no question to him whether it's God's word or not. That's taken for granted. But he's more concerned with his ability to follow it. He's pleading for understanding. He understand, he wants to, he, pleading for understanding so that he can follow it to the end. Right? He's dependent on God to explain it to him, to show him the way. 
It's not just simple transferred information or data. He's looking for something more. He's looking for God to teach and direct, like I've said. What we'd call this is, is illumination. It's the work of the Holy Spirit, right? So we have inspiration. God's Spirit moves to help us writing it. God's Spirit illuminates the Word as we read it and as we look into it, right? And for the psalmist, understanding leads to complete devotion. And the impact for him is that he will follow it till the end, and he'll live with it for all his, with all his heart. He'll follow it with all his heart. Jesus reiterates these, te- these uh, truths in John 14, verses 23 to 26. Jesus replied, Anyone who loves me will obey my teaching. My Father will love them and will come to them and make our home with them. Anyone who does not love me will not obey my teaching. These words you hear are not my own. They belong to the Father who sent me. All this I have spoken while I am still with you. But the Advocate, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father is sending in my name, will teach you all things and will remind you of everything I have said to you. See, this whole process, and this whole engagement with Scripture is, is, is a part of an act of God's grace. Right? He reveals himself to, to us through it, through inspiration, the writing of his word, and through the illumination as we hear it, understand it, and try to apply it in our lives. So it's important to think that we approach Scripture with humility, recognizing that we can't do it on our own. Here's some other key uh, New Testament Scriptures. First, 2 Timothy three sixteen and 17. All Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. And Hebrews 4.12, For the Word of God is alive and active, sharper than a double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and the attitudes of the heart. It's a living book. Our Bibles are a living book. It's a spiritual book. God breathed. It's alive and it's active. It informs us. It convicts us. It challenges us. Right? It's the standard by how we measure all of our experiences. It's how we you know, measure and determine our theology. It's supreme that way. We have to have, hold it up with high esteem. Right? It's not just an information book. It's not a philosophical text, historical text. Of course those, those elements are there. But that's not what it's meant to be. It's God's word. We need to devote ourselves to it. And if we don't have a high view of Scripture like that, we will lose our way. It can be swayed by modern views, popular opinions. We're going to be tempted to change parts of it and reinterpret parts of it that don't fit you know, today's world. Right? We're not going to trust that it's inspired by God. We can forget to seek you know, the Spirit to illuminate it for us. Right? An example of this is a woman named Greta Vosper. Some of you may have heard of her. Uh, she's a minister in the United Church of Canada. Back in 2016, around Easter time, the CBC, the National, did a, a story on her. And um, what it is, is she's, she's come out as an atheist. She's a United Church minister who's become an atheist and has come out. But she wants to stay within the United Church. The United Church of Canada wanted to defrock her. They wanted to take away her credentials. They wanted to move her out of the church. And uh, so there's this whole battle going on. So at the time of the show, the, the whole discussion was about this. You know, she makes, she, you know, in her defense, she said, you know, about 50% of all United Church ministers are atheists now. They followed that up with a study. Somebody did, did a, some kind of survey. It's not 50%, but 
there are people, there are United Church ministers who are atheists, um, which is sad. Uh, she also said this. He said that she was a product of the United Church of Canada. She says, I, it, was, it has created who I am. It's a major force in my life. She says, how can you guys shut me out when you, I come from you? I was created. I came up and I grew up and I was you know, raised in the United Church. And that's a good point, right? The United Church, and I hate to slam a, a denomination all out. There are good people in the United Church. But on a whole, they've strayed in a number of different ways from the God's word. Right? They don't seem to have a high view of God's of God's word. Greta right? Vosper has continue, continues after the uh, that documentary. Greta Vosper, um, you know, they found some agreement, and she continues to be a a minister for the United Church of Canada <laughs> to this day. We can't conform to the pressures of the world, right? To other worldviews, we need to hold on to Scripture as our guide. And they can only do that if the Holy Spirit reveals it to us. So that's the first reason. The first reason here is that the, the reason the psalmist delights in God's word is because God reveals himself to us through it. The second reason is God's word resets our priorities. If you want to take a look at verses 36 and 37. Turn my heart toward your statutes and not toward selfish gain. Turn my eyes away from worthless things. Preserve my life according to your word. God word. God's word changes our heart's direction. That first line of verse 36 says, Turn my heart. In the ESV, it's incline my heart towards your statutes. The statutes is a reference to the covenant, to the law that's been handed down. The statutes is a reference to rules, right? We don't like rules very much in our society, in our culture, but... The psalmist views these things in a positive light. He saw these as the very words of God, who loved him enough, loved us enough to reveal it and to reveal himself to us. So he says, Turn my heart towards your statutes, but turn me away, turn it away from selfish gain. Selfish gain is covetousness, you know, we can define it selfishness. It's our, actually, it's our heart's natural inclination is to be selfish, right? To think about ourselves first. It's essential sin. It's common. It's, we see it throughout the scriptures. Achan, remember Achan stealing all that, you know, little goodies, trying to bury him in his tent. <laughs> Ananias and Sapphira, right? Selling the land, saying they gave it all, but they didn't give it all. David and Bathsheba. You know, David coveted in Bathsheba. He went after her. And in each of those cases, there were horrible consequences. There's many more. There's many more uh, examples of that. But God judges that, right? Selfish gain is in direct opposition to God's what God wants. It's in direct opposition to what Christ teaches as well. If you want to take a look at First uh, John four, it's verses seven, ten, and eleven. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And whoever has love who has been born of God and knows God. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation of our, for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. See? Selfishness is also against God's character, right? God loves us first. He wants us to follow in that example and to continue that. Paul gives further direction in Philippians 2, 3, 4. He says it more explicitly. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, 
not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. So we can see that it's clear God wants us to be to not to be selfish, but to think of others, to love, right? To be concerned for the benefits of others more than ourselves. But in order to do this, we need help. We need God's help, right? You notice that the psalmist is pleading for God here. He's pleading that God would turn his heart, right? He needs God's grace to do this, right? We too must ask God to do that, right? To allow his word as we read it to, to work in our hearts. It's alive and it's active to bring conviction, to show us where we're selfish, to show us where we're, we're looking for our own benefits, right? To give us that discernment. And as we do this, our hearts are renewed and we begin to worship him and to live for him. But God's word also brings clarity as we move into verse 37. Turn my eyes away from worthless things. What things are worthless, huh? Or what things are worthwhile? What things are necessary? I was, uh, about a month ago, I watched a documentary on Netflix. It's about this guy. His name's Tommy Caldwell. He's a rock climber. And uh, he was in Yosemite Park, and he was climbing uh, this big rock face called El Capitan. And one part of it is called the Dawn Wall, and people say you can't climb it because there's not enough cracks. Rock climbers need cracks and ridges to go up. Anyhow, um, it was interesting. They, they were going to climb this wall, but it was going to take them three weeks, two to three weeks to do it. But as they did it, they had to kind of decide what they needed to take, right? They went bare bones up this hill. They had these tents that kind of, they peg them into the wall, they drill them in, and then they have them hanging there. Because they're up there for three, they're up there for a long time, Right? But you can see how they decided what was necessary and what wasn't, right? In these situations, in those kind of situations in life, that's what happens. We have to decide what's important and what's not, right? We need to kind of adopt that idea as well to our lives. Scripture speaks to eternal things, right? We should store up treasures in heaven, right? Things that don't pass away, right? It emphasizes things that are good. Those are things that are worthwhile. But as we seek God in his word, he reveals to us, those things. He makes those things clear to us, what's worthwhile, what's not. He helps us to discern. But we need to give it time. Psalm 1 says this, 1 and 2, Blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, or stand in the way of sinners, or sit in the seat of mockers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. Meditates. We need time to meditate. Need to be away from you know for counsel, counsel of the wicked or people who want to distract you. Colossians three sixteen. Let the message of Christ dwell among you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom through psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit, singing to God with gratitude in your hearts. What these passages tell us is that in order to reap full, uh, ben, to fully reap the benefits of Scripture, we need to spend time in it. We need to take away those distractions. We need to focus on those things. And what is worthwhile will come to light for us. I hate to do this, but I have to bring it up. Technology is a well-documented problem for us as we look at things that are worthwhile in our life. Um, they can become a huge waste of time if we let them. And I know Richard's talked about it, but it's all over the media, how much time people are spending looking at a screen and looking at their devices. But not only can it just be a waste of time, they can, they can be great tools, too. I don't want to be... I love my phone. Um, <laughs> it can also make us impatient, right? You know, texting, getting a quick answer. In the old days, you had to phone somebody, wait for their response, or send a letter, whatever. Now, everything's so immediate, right? People can respond. We expect things back. When I don't get a text response in a half an hour, I'm getting like, what's wrong with this person, right? Um, 
That's what you guys, that's my judgment coming through. <laughs> but it has a spiritual impact. Um, the study on Bible reading talked about this as well. Evangelical Fellowship of Canada said, the spiritual impact is that we have an unwillingness to meditate on God's word. We want something so fast, right? We don't have time to, medit- to wait on him, right? So we can't appreciate the depth of God's word if we're just kind of quickly rushing through it and reading over it and then moving, right? If we don't allow the spirit to move in us, right, when we're reading it, we don't let it really to set in. John Piper says, if you want to dig for gold, if you want to, if you want to get dirt, you use a rake. If you want to find gold, you've got to dig, right? We need to just dig for gold and spend time in it. It takes more time. It takes more effort. But it's worthwhile in the end, right? If we do, God's word will revive us. You see in verse 37, the last line, preserve my life according to your word. It's also, it is translated, revive me in your way, or keep me alive. God's word will keep us alive. It might sound like the psalmist is worshiping God's word here. I kind of thought that when I read it too. But um, every reference to the word and the law for him is a reference to God himself. He doesn't make a separation, right? His love for God is something that's refreshed by his study of the word, right? Our Bible study should lead us to worshiping him. And it it leads us to a God who saves us, who revives us, who gives us new life. Right? It ultimately, this points to Christ. J.I. Packer says, We should settle in our minds that everything the Father and the Son say to us in and through Scripture relates one way or another to the purpose, place, and purpose of Christ, to the realities of God's kingdom, and to faithful, faithful following of Christ. Wow, I did a bad job reading that. Uh, let me just sum it up. God's Word, God, anything in Scripture leads us to Christ. All of it, to His purposes, to his direction for you, right? It's giving us information, but it's, it's teaching us in our heart all about that. Everything's pointing towards Christ. The Bible is Christ-centric. And this is worthwhile. That's what's worthwhile. We began with that question. As we turn to God's Word, we're reminded or we're confronted with Christ, right? And our lives are turned around. Our perspectives change as we shift our priorities and we become fully satisfied in Him. The psalmist viewed God's laws as the sign of his grace, and he views them as an extension of God himself, right? His love for God's word was a sign of his love for God himself. So the first two things are that the psalmist delighted in. He delighted in God's word because God reveals himself to us through it, and because God resets our priorities as we read it, and then we meditate on it. The third reason is that he delighted in God's word is that God's word gives us new life. Look at verses 38 to 40. Fulfill your promise to your servant, so that you may be feared. Take away the disgrace I dread, for your laws are good. How I long for your precepts. In your righteousness, preserve my life. The first thing I notice as I, as I read that is these three pleas made by the, uh, the psalmist in each verse. Fulfill your promise. Take away my disgrace. Preserve my life. Right? As we look at that through a New Testament lens, we can see the covenant of grace clearly. Right? Our lives are preserved through God's righteousness. But evidently, the psalmist knew that as well. He knew that his salvation was dependent on God. Right? 
He saw God's laws as life-giving. Jesus demonstrates this in Matthew 4, 4. You know, when he's in, the, he's in the desert being tempted by Satan, he says, Man shall not live on bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Our spiritual life comes from the word of God. You can find it in there. Second thing I notice as I look at this portion here, there's two types of fear. Verse 38 says, Fulfill your promise to your servant so that you may be feared. That kind of fear is a positive thing. It makes a person receptive to God's word. It it gives us a desire to avoid sin. It's marked by humility and a recognition of who God is. It's part of being in a right relationship with God. The second type of fear is mentioned in verse 39. Take away the disgrace I dread. Or dread could be uh, interpreted as fear. This is a negative fear and it results from the possibility of judgment. When you're facing judgment, is when you deserve judgment, when you deserve punishment. That's that kind of fear. And to, to me, those two types of fear, opposing types of fear, point to God's grace as well. Even though we have reason to face God's judgment, to dread it, we know that we deserve it. When we approach Him with reverent fear, when we hold on to His promise, He's going to preserve our, our life. So there we go. God's grace is coming through clearly in this passage. One more thing. Verse 40. In your righteousness, preserve my life. The key is here is your, the word your. The psalmist is pleading for God's help once again. Right? He recognizes that only God can save him. He's dependent on God. We should love God's word because he tells us who God is. And it reminds us that we need him. N.T. Wright says, It's important that we recognize the Bible not just as true information or as a commentary about salvation, but as an active part in that process. He said that the Bible is designed to function through human beings, through the church, through people, who living still by the Spirit have their life molded by this Spirit-inspired book. God's Word becomes a part of, and becomes an active tool in bringing us to life, new life, to renewing our lives, to bringing us to salvation. Right? It is living and active. Many years ago, uh, I attended a Pentecostal. Caroline attended a Pentecostal church, and if you're in, familiar with Pentecostal theology, there's very big emphasis put on the baptism of the Spirit, speaking in tongues, and those kinds of things. And as a kind of a younger Christian, I struggled with that. Am I filled with the Spirit? You know, there's a lot of people telling me that I, you know, you needed to have these tongues, and I didn't have it. And so, uh, you know, I went and studied, looked at it back and forth, all these passages back and forth going on, racking my brains trying to find it. And I just got, all of a sudden one day, I just heard this voice. I heard this thought in my head that, not heard a voice, okay. <laughs> um, but I had this thought. You love God's word. I had grown to love his word as I was reading through it and studying it, right? That was something that hadn't been there five years before, right? And I thought, this love and desire to know and to even to be concerned with this at all is a result of God's spirit working in my heart, right? And to this day, my, I can tell, my, the amount that I engage in God's word is always a marker of where my relationship with God is. It's always, at any given moment, I can say, okay, how am I doing here spiritually? And my desire and my delight in God's word will show me where I am at spiritually with God and where my relationship is at.
And that really is my main point today. Our love of God's word is a reflection of our love for, uh, for God himself. As I was preparing to do this sermon, I've been reading a book called The Great Evangelical Disaster by Francis Schaeffer. Uh, He wrote it in 1984. And he has this really amazing image that I want to share with you as we conclude. Um, He was living in Switzerland when he was writing the book. And he said, there's this high ridge of rock in the mountains. And it was all covered with snow. And he said, it looked uniform, right? There was no separation. The snow was just one big blanket over the whole ridge. But it wasn't uniform. He says, it's not. It looks, you know, you got a picture there. <laughs> it looks like that. It looks uniform. But it wasn't uniform. There was something, there was differences. When spring came, snow on one side of the ridge would melt and flow down to a small river at the bottom in the valley, and that would join up with the Rhine, the river, Rhine River. That would move north through Germany and out into the cold waters of the North Sea. On the other side of the mountain, when it snowed, when it melted, the snow would, would flow down into Lake Geneva. And that would flow south through the Rhone River, down through France, and into the warm waters of the Mediterranean Sea. Right? He was using that to look at Christians and how we view the word, how different the churches are denominationally. But I want to just look at it as individuals, right? We can look a lot like each other on the outside. We might speak the same lingo. We might do the same things. We might watch the same movies. We may serve in the same ways in our community, in our church. We might look like great people. But there's, those little differences are really subtle. We may not see them, but they're there. If we're not spending time with God's, in God's Word on a regular basis, we're not allowing Him to work through us, to change us, we'll end up in a much different place. People who, serve, who want to serve God, who engage His Word, will end up in one place. Other people will drift away. I used that example of Greta Vosper, the United Church minister earlier. She didn't become an atheist in a day. That's a gradual slide over time. Little differences here and there, little things, little undermining the, you know, the truth and the, um, the power of Scripture. Our view of Scripture is key. You know, do we treasure it? Do we delight, as the psalmist does? Is it your standard of truth? Or is it something that feels archaic, you know, not relevant to your life? Are you too busy to spend time doing it, to reading it? Right? Or do you prefer to get your wisdom from other places? Right? God's word is vital to sustaining us spiritually, right? As believers and as a church. And we can't do it on our own. This psalm proves it, right? It constantly goes back to God. Cause me to. That, actually, the, the Hebrew letter, he, that starts off, um, that this, is, this section is named after, actually has this, um, they put it at the beginning of the verb, it means to cause to, right? So the whole verse is about God causing us to do things, right? Um, give us, teach me, give me understanding. So cause me to walk in your way. God, teach me, give me understanding. The action comes from God. So if you're struggling to read your Bible on a regular basis, just pray that God will turn your heart. If you pray sincerely, He will do it, right? He will give you understanding. And He'll work to transform you. Right? Psalm 119 is true then spending time in God's word will result in a growing admiration for God himself. It will cause us to delight in him.
And our love or our delight of God's word is a reflection of our love for God himself. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for this amazing gift of your word. Lord, it tells us who you are. It tells us who we are. Helps to reset our priorities, challenges, and it convicts us, God. It gives us guidance in every situation, Lord. And it gives us life. I pray for anybody here who might be struggling to, re- to do this on a regular basis, to read and spend time in it, Lord. God, prick their hearts this morning. Lead them to yourself, God. As a church, Lord, and as individuals, may we lean on your word for guidance. Amen. Thank you.